And that's why a lot of people just relegate commerce success to luck, right? It's really difficult to coordinate all of those things at the right place at the right time in a culture with the right audience. Like you, manufacturing, that's incredibly difficult. Is To do it on purpose is really, really tough, right? There's a, a famous artist who uh, said that uh, painting is easy. I think it was Degas who said, like, painting is easy and, and until you, you get good at painting and then painting's really hard. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of You Are Not Your ROAS. I have one of the biggest brains in the industry with an incredibly interesting history. And also, you just put out a really great tweet uh, about the Anthony Bourdain um, kind of vibe that you really are really candidly cultivating at, at Future Commerce. But uh, Philip Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's about time this. I'm I'm. Big- same, same, you know, it's kind of that old adage of uh, big time fan, first time caller. So I've been really, really excited once we got this on the books. And also thank you for your flexibility yesterday. I uh, had a, a panel pop up and uh, Philip was gracious enough to uh, allow us to reschedule. So uh, putting some good scheduling karma back into the world, Philip. Um, I, I Forgive me for bringing some of those things into like public forums on Twitter. I think it's funny. Uh, some people don't think it's funny. I thought it was cute. It's um, amazing. It, you had another really good, uh, yeah, uh, change.org petition to. Uh, <laughs> so for people that don't know, or, or, or you, you tell the story because it's fantastic. The, the thoughtfulness and like, if people put half that type of attention to detail towards their brand, like D 2 C would be 10 X the industry, like the the Easter eggs and just the. Or, or, uh, I'm I'm stealing your thunder. T- tell us the story real yeah. quick, and then we can get into it. It, it sort of piggybacks on. So we're, we're actually longtime partners. I don't know if you even know this. We uh, we go back a little ways. We launched a show over Future Commerce. So Future Commerce, for those that aren't aware, is a media company that covers the intersection of culture and commerce. We have five properties, uh, four podcasts, and a, and a couple of newsletters. And um, and we've been partnered for a little while on one of our properties called Infinite Shelf, uh, which is hosted by Ingrid Milman Cordy, brilliant uh, strategist over at Nestle Health Science, and just an incredible podcast host in her own right. But um, I know we'd been partnered for a long time. You and I haven't really connected, uh, but you all came out with Willy, uh, which is the AI-powered uh, sort of insights engine over there at Triple Whale. And I thought it was such a cute name. Uh, but, you know, the whole, the whole premise around calling calling something Willy, especially if you're like me and you're sort of uh, on the hump of uh, Gen X or Millennial. So uh, I remember in 1992, there was this film, Free Willy, um, on which, by the way, uh, Michael Jackson had like a really big hit. <laughs> uh, uh, it was a meme uh, before memes were meme. And, uh, you know, the end of the movie, which they spoil in in uh, the trailer of the film, is that this 12 or 11 year old kid frees Willie, uh, this captive uh, Shamu looking killer whale uh, that is in a SeaWorld esque, you know, park in San Diego. And he lets Willie go back to the wild. And I just thought it would be really interesting to draw attention to the proliferation of the story. This AI is working its way into everything, it's working its way into tools. Uh, we're disintermediating the human brain with uh, things that we don't need to be spending our time on, like correlating a lot of things that are disparate information and bringing them into one place, extrapolating insights out of them. Not like our tools haven't had this for years. Uh, we haven't been able to brand them things like Willy in a really long time. And so uh, I created a change.org petition. 
draw attention to the fact that there are people in this world who believe that these intelligences are a new form of uh, uh, sentience, uh, or we're on the cusp of AGI or uh, you know artificial generalized intelligence, and that you know some people are worried about a future where these you know these beings and these intelligences are subjected to doing trivial tasks for us, and what that might be like if you were to put yourself in the position of Willie. So I'm like, hey, free Willie. Let's all go. Let's get behind Freeing Willie. And in a, a total of 11 people in the world, Rabba, have actually signed this. Uh, the real free. ones out there. Free. I, I was really, uh, my team was mad because I spent time writing that petition and not writing a newsletter. And I'm like, <laughs> it's so good. Like, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> it's literally like pros. It's like a level of like passion someone would have like around climate change or politics or something. I mean, it was so on the nose. I loved it. Yeah. You, you know, you took me down a tangent because I want to lay the foundation of kind of who Philip Jackson is, where you were, where you are, where you're going. But the AI stuff is just, it's catnip to me. And yeah. it, there's a few things going on there. And I love your takes because it, it feels like you, you're, I don't want to say fence sitting because that sounds like a pejorative, but like you have a very measured, view on it i think and i believe you you're really receptive to a lot of arguments which in my opinion is really a great like i, I love the saying uh strong opinions weekly held right or strong beliefs weekly held with data changes i change my mind kind of stuff but the meta level of it is really fascinating to me because there has never been if you think of like the world as a store of productivity right there's certain vectors of that productivity and a lot of those vectors were internalized knowledge where the, this expertise really couldn't be shortcut. It was a function of time where you just had to get the reps in. Now, a lot of those people are going to have a lot of kind of sunk costs because there's, it's almost like a reskilling of the skilled labor force, which is, is it, it's paradoxical, right? And so I guess the too long didn't read is an oncologist. So for people that don't know an oncologist is it's basically a cancer doctor. An oncologist will get replaced quicker than the nurse will. And, and that just blows my mind. Like, what's your take on that? Or like, how how do you see kind of the the displacement of intelligence in a way? Because you're, you you can outsource, or, or you get what I'm saying though, right? Like, I can I can gain these skills that I never, or I can take advantage of the output of these skills without having these skills. It's almost like the matrix, but you don't get it downloaded. You just get the output. Uh, let me answer that by telling you a little bit about how we are investigating, you know, the proliferation, this very quick penetration of, of AI into tools that power commerce. So yep. what we examine is the changes of commerce. And we believe we have this big, you know, heady idea that uh, you said that I've, I had this tweet. I want to be the Anthony Bourdain of commerce. I want people to fall in love with commerce and I want to take you to, you know, places unknown. I want to take you to to places where you understand that commerce is a tool that we can use to affect change in the world. And that doesn't, depends on whether that, you know, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, whether that's good change or bad change, but we all have to engage in commerce, whether we like it or not. And I think that when we're talking about the way that people's desires are cultivated and how they are changed, we have actually been subject to the proliferation of AI for the better part of five years. If you look at how Google has implemented artificial intelligence in its tools, it's done so sparingly and with an extremely um, gradual approach to yep. 
providing nudges to users over time. And we've all benefited from that to some degree, whether to your point, Rob, it's, it's productivity and extracting an, an amount of productivity. I don't have to write those three words because it suggested it to me. I don't even have to reply because I'm getting automated reply suggestions. Uh, these are small increments to socialize us to a norm of the machine knows what we're going to say before we say it. And if you take that to its logical end and we think about where that means it's going, it does mean that there is a style of a task that maybe we haven't realized yet that human potential is wasted on. And, and maybe what we, what we can do is use our human potential for things that only humans can do. Now we can, there's a lot of thought leadership in the world of like, whether this is good or bad, but the, what we do is we do a lot of textbook reading of future commerce and we try to extrapolate what people said in the past and overlay that on the future. We look at sociology, we look at uh, psychology, we look at philosophy, and we try to think about how people who have thought much deeper about a topic that than we ever will, uh, what they have said about the ways that the world is changing. And so we could correlate some of that. The fact is, though, is that the stack of textbooks that I have right here, which this is no brag, by the way, uh, but, you know, this is a lot of dead paper. You know, I have a lot of <laughs> books in these textbooks, you know, cities of commerce and retail in detail, which, by the way, if you've, you know, if you've done an MBA, you've probably read, you know, mathematics for retail buying. Like, these are things that people like dig into. My hum the human potential is the fact is I will spend 115 hours reading these books. I'm going to remember a scant bit of it. Correlating the information found in the book back to something that's relevant in the moment is a really difficult task. Yes. When you think about how the knowledge that's contained in these books is then overlaid on from future state in your career, and you can bring these things back to the fore without having to spend the time to read it, without having to spend the time to extract the insight, and without having to go ahead and make, make time to remember it, I do think that there were at like this incredible moment. But it does democratize things away from people that are logicians or people that are coders or people that have typically been, you know, gatekeeper is probably a strong word, people who have been a barrier, like a style of thinking and a mode of learning and a uh, the capability of extrapolating and reasoning data out of a system and turning that into action. Yep. That is a particular cultivated skill that very few people have had in our industry and that's why our industry looks so homogenous right now imagine a future where anybody can break into e-commerce because they have tools to it that allow them to do so i think things look very different in five to ten years now that's a, a a wonderful way to put it i i totally agree with you on on pretty much all the points the the one can i toss you like a a, a big philosophical matzo, matzo ball sure okay if this starts to go down the path that I think it is, and we have so many data points, and I create a machine that essentially will give you the idealized, say, you know, we're optimizing for happiness, whatever your happiness is, we'll just call it happiness, right? Would you follow those prescriptions and take kind of like the decision out of your life and just do that because that's what i'm struggling with where it's like it, you know again we'll, we'll definitely get into the fun commerce stuff but phil philip is just i love his brain so i just want to ask him this like you know it's almost getting really close to that free will question of like if a machine can decide better decisions for me 
do I want to take the suboptimal choice because I made it or do I want to follow what the machine says? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Well, let me, let, let's, let's make this real for one second and let's okay. do a little thought experiment. So, um, back three, three years ago, maybe just before the pandemic, I looked at my closet. Now you, one thing you may not know about me is that I, uh, in 2016, um, I weighed 334 pounds. And no, what I did not know that. Uh, so I had, uh, I had a developer bod. <laughs> so at one point in time, old, <laughs> I was a software engineer, and you know this this brain was powered by you know Mountain Dew and hot dogs. And yep. <laughs> uh, 2016, I kind of reached a breaking point, and uh, I found myself on a lot of prescription medication. Um, I found myself uh, uh, addicted to alcohol. Um, found myself in a cycle that I just didn't feel like I could ever break free from. And in January, uh, January 17th of 2017, I changed my mind. I woke up one day and I said, I can't live like this anymore. And I went for a run and, uh, many, many years, I think six years now we're, we're in is many years later, uh, I'm six years sober. I, I lost 143 pounds through diet and exercise alone. I had to do something different to achieve a different result. That's a whole other story, whole other time. But one of the things that comes along with that is a dramatic restructuring of everything that I knew. So the clothes that I wear, my style, how I put myself out into the world. And now I'm at an age where I like I have to make decisions. And there was a lot of fatigue around it. And I came there. I, I, I rebought the same wardrobe three, four times. I tried to do stitch fix. I was losing weight rapidly. And I just didn't, even though I, w I was achieving the body that I wanted at the time, I wasn't achieving... I was having the same sort of problems of nothing really fits quite right. Nothing really, I don't know what my style is. Yep. And I tried to outsource it. I gave it to Citrix. I said, you tell me what my style is. And it just wasn't, even though I was outsourcing the decision, I wasn't necessarily happy with the result. I still wanted to maintain some level of control, even though that control was frustrating to me. What I landed on was, I'm just going to wear black. So I, I was a wardrobe about three years ago. I got a bunch of black t-shirts, a lot of black pants. And I'm a sneaker guy like you. The only amount of decision fatigue that I want to have in my day is which pair of sneakers am I going to wear today? Yeah. And everything else is already decided for me because I made that one decision. It was a meta decision many, many years ago. I think a lot of decision making like that is actually when we take control away from people, it's not about taking away free will. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. Joy is a state of being. There are two different things. A series of happy events strung together over a long period of time creates the feeling of joy. I don't know if AI can give us joy. It might give us fleeting happiness. I think we still want to maintain some control. And so I don't know if that answers your question. It but does. Back to my experience. My experience tells me that users do want to be in control and they'll be fatigued about the control, but that's what actually creates the state of feeling uh, reproducing feeling over time that leads us to a state of being rather than a momentary, you know, fleeting emotion. You know, it really does. And I, it, it kind of changes my tune because I was, I was kind of pessimistic about it, but now as you kind of lay out those things, I'm very optimistic. So, cause to your point, uh, decision fatigue is massive. It's something that I've really struggled with, especially at, at my transition from C CMO to chief evangelist where Finally, I have all this leadership and I'm still kind of getting over the PTSD and like the fog of war is starting to clear a little bit. But I'm realizing, to your point, there can be a misallocation of brain power to actual like 
like does it really matter what you wear that much probably not but like does it matter if you go to the gym or if you eat healthy or whatever and to your point if you're spending those thought cycles on things that aren't getting you towards the too long didn't read is i think what you're saying is that if ai can create an environment that can push you towards your goals and not only remove decisions, but make the right decisions easier. Cause I think a lot of people are path of least resistance and everyone I know that is great is like a master of his or her routine. Like very rarely do people just wake up and I work this time where it's like, Oh, I'm up at X time. I'm doing Y I'm doing like the, the decisions in their day are so, I mean, jobs was the same way, right? Where Steve jobs notoriously wore one uh, turtleneck jeans and his new balances every day, essentially. And so that's a really interesting take. See, I'm so glad I got to ask that question. Now the robots are not coming for me. Yeah, add one, one sort of uh, uh, a layer to it. And then, you know, uh, I'll let you get back to your line of questioning. But I do think that there is a, uh, there's a, a big, there is a, an element of how much free will do we truly have already in the modern 100%. economy. 100%. People whose jobs it is to to create demand, right, and to and to aggregate attention, know that people, if you turn on if you turn on the ads, and and they're just persuasive enough, you can test your way into creating demand. And so you start. I think we have been at a moment. We had a, a one of our uh, most popular podcasts on future commerce uh, for many many years was. Uh, uh, an older episode called um, The Dark Side. And and it was uh, predicated around a story that at the time, and this I believe was maybe 2016, 2017, um, predicated around the story that uh, a man uh, had taken, his father had passed away and he had taken all the transcripts from every text message, every chat that yeah. he dad and sort of posthumously, you know, created some sort of a, a this experience where he could chat with him. Now, it was nowhere near what we have today with a lot of large language models, but he wanted to evoke the feeling, right? The feeling of having uh, a daily conversation with his father. And, you know, if you take that to its logical end, you can probably draw a line between the fact that, you know, Todd Snyder sent me a, a display ad that made me buy a denim jacket uh, and then made me want to buy shoes that go with the denim jacket. And then, you know, next thing you know, uh, between a series of lookalike audiences, you know, I'm now a sneakerhead where I wasn't necessarily before, and it's all predicated on one purchase that led me down a rabbit hole. I don't think that those two behaviors are so v very different from each other. There are, there is the 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 natural human need to want to create uh, uh, or persist a feeling, and then there's the other where there's the marketer's role and the and the role of brands in our world where we relinquish some control over our free will to them because we like the feeling that we get from it. And those are actually, I think, very similar. They're, they're very different use cases. They're expressed wildly different to each other, but they come from the same emotional center as is that we're trying to chase a feeling or trying to chase an emotion. One we can manufacture, another one we relinquish control. No, I, no, that's super interesting. There's a, a really great, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it now. But basically, essentially, the switch from uh, utilitarianism to consumerism in the states. Uh, oh my gosh, it's such a good documentary, and I'm gonna uh, the Age of Self, yeah, uh, with Eddie Bernays, what a scumbag, but pro you know, top tier practitioner, but just a horrible, horrible human. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so interesting that you say that. I mean, my kind of two axioms, I think, for the human experience are 
people want to take the path of least resistance and people experience the world in stories. And, and almost every time it, especially now too, because it's kind of what you're touching on in that consumerism and again, good or bad, I, I don't like to judge where I, I just think people do what they're incentivized to do. And um, depending on the vertical, you know, are you making them better? Is there utility added? Is this status where it's like, oh, cool, you have this fancy watch or whatever that then exudes X, Y, or Z thing that you're talking about. But man, fascinating stuff. I love it. Let's take a quick step back. Give me kind of the Philip Jackson in a nutshell kind of just chronology, timeline. Because I, I, I did not know, I, I, I knew you were intellectual. I didn't know you were a software engineer. I didn't know that um, you were two of you, um, which is it's such an interesting thing. So, so literally at one point. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, like, give, give us kind of the skinny there. No pun intended. No pun intended. I'll take the pun. Uh, so, if I, if I had to go really far back, so once upon a time, um, I went to a small Bible college because I thought I was going to study the- theology. And yep. at, the, at the time, I was uh, in a band. And my band. What was the band name? That was called Revolution. Pre Spotify, nobody cares about it at this point. But um, <laughs> I'm an old guy now. We sold, we looked for literal physical CDs, man. Let's go. People don't know about the merch table. Let's get it done. No, that's, I think a lot of like modern marketers got it from, you know, uh, having to run those types of uh, experiential, um, you know, sort of entertainment based uh, uh, careers before, it, you know, went hard. Uh, I went on the road with my band for a summer, dropped out of school, and then just never came home. I spent seven years traveling uh, 50 weeks a year on the road with my band and um, tried really career of uh, of being a musician, played with a lot of acts. I've, I've done the, the backline musician thing, played uh, guitar for Shaka Khan. I played guitar for Michael Bolton. Um, that one. That's amazing. Tito Puente was a Latin artist, um, and uh, did did a little bit of that, and um, but then also played a lot of music in like the church world. And um, I don't know if you know this; it's extremely hard to make a living in music. It's even harder to do it as like a faith band. Um, it was really popular, by the way, in the early aughts. Um, and then uh, my wife and I we got married, spent a couple years as, uh, traveling. She was an amazing singer, um, and we tried to have like a an an act together and. Um, but the thing that was constant what was that one called uh, "Go Away Bird." Also, nobody cares. Um, like it, I've just made peace with it. Like twenty years. This is so fascinating. But we had uh, the thing that was sort of the mainstay was that I had spent. You know, I'm, I was fascinated with computers and was always building uh, software, um, even from a younger age, and trying to get time on computers at school or. Uh, and so what, what it, it turns out is like, is if you're a band and, you know, but in the pre MySpace era and you're making a website on your own, you're learning and gaining a lot of skills. And then a lot of other bands are asking you to use those skills. And eventually some business person takes a chance on you. And, um, so to make an extremely long story, even longer for you, uh, freelance development is really what was paying the bills and, um, but not enough make that really successful for me. And so in 2005, uh, we sort of called it quits and I found a job and that job was the direct to consumer brand, although we would not have called it that back in the day. Um, and you know, when you think about what e-commerce was like in 2005, six, seven, and eight, this is pre-platforms. We were building literally everything from scratch. We were building database architecture from scratch. We were building software teams from scratch. We were, Checkouts. you know, making everything. And, um, and 
you know, and that's internal reporting. It's ERP software. It's oh, ERP. It's EDI, like everything that you can potentially imagine that we have a plugin for today, we were building from scratch. And so I cut my teeth in building software teams and, and building really, really capable, you know, teams, uh, back before it was cool in the e-commerce space. Now we wouldn't have called them digitally native vertical brands, but that's what I did for 10 years was I built software teams for those brands and teams that went on to like go, you know, the, the SVPs at Zulily and, uh, and, and exit Amazon. And, uh, and one of the folks I hired recently, um, in the last 15 years is like, you know, one of the foremost experts on Shopify in the world. So just having a pedigree of those early, um, you know, uh, early builders really gave me a lot of uh, discipline and uh, working with brilliant marketers who knew back in the pre-arbitrage days were able to do demand gen of things like, you know, of actual radio and television advertising um, and catalog uh, management because paper catalogs were still really popular. So yeah, people for sleep on Sears, man. They built the whole massive business off the catalog. Generational business. Generous fair play, yeah. So if you, if you think about, you know, I know one of the, the audience questions was, you know, how to, how to think about attribution. Well, you know, we never had attribution. We never had attribution in those days because the tooling didn't really exist. And you had marketers and merchandisers, which by the way, the skill of a merchandiser is completely missed in, in 2023. Like we, we don't have generational merchandisers, not really, not out of e-com. We have a lot of technologists like me who had to learn how to be a retailer, but you didn't really have the skill and the like art of merchandising in e-commerce until very, very recently. Um, and we're, by the, by the way, relinquished a lot of, we would talk about free will. We've relinquished a lot of the power just to software to do a lot of that for us, but that's a whole other conversation. But that's where, where I came up. 10 years ago, I made the leap uh, over to, uh, uh, do, you know, running strategy, uh, at a firm called something digital. And in 2020, we, um, I spent almost 10 years with that team and helped to grow it. Big office at Bryant park had, you know, 150 people. And then, uh, October of 2020, uh, we were acquired by a big global consulting firm. And I went from the guy who spent, you know, at that point, 16, 18 years in my career with teams that were, you know, 150 and lower small team, you're right. Being you know, at this global corporation that had 90,000 employees. And I learned so much in that two years, uh, that it really helped me gain, you know, a perspective on what real true enterprise needs, not just building e-commerce for enterprise as a, as a vendor, but being the person who actually creates the initiatives and helps to, you know, manifest the things that we see in the world for some of the world's largest brands. Um, AB InBev, uh, Abbott Pharmaceuticals, you know, you like Nestle, um, and really seeing like how commerce at a, a truly global scale works, um, yep. gave me a completely different perspective and has really helped me to, to wrap my head around it. And then I found a media company and here we are uh, full time running it and uh, future commerce is thriving. So it's really exciting. Um, and you should cut like 90% of what I just said. It was all very boring. Um, no, no, zero percent. This is, this is why I, I wanted to have you on the show. Like I always find it so fascinating when you. Because you, you can get caught in, like you said, future commerce is thriving. I think it's just absolutely a, a beacon of hope in in some of the kind of career that goes on in D2C and just in retail in general. But um, sometimes you get fixated on the outcome, right? And you forget, like, how people got there. Like, 
and candidly, the most interesting people usually have like a really interesting history where you, you learn musician, you, you know, groupie, you're hustling merch, you're doing this. Oh, now I'm actually getting into the binary zeros and ones. Oh, now I'm scrumming and scrum master running a team. Like, it, like what a wild, wacky, it's kind of, again, the Steve Jobs reference of you can't connect the dots forward, only backward, right? Because I, I have the same kind of just totally wacky uh, path as well, but I think sometimes there is a, a certain aspect of the, when you have, especially when you're younger and you have that breadth and range, it can really set you up for understanding who you are, what you want, but more importantly, what you don't get it, like what you don't vibe with. Because sometimes I, there was a, a big PM out of Microsoft, I forget the study, but essentially he was doing a study on happiness, um, which I actually, I prefer your your joy is is a better uh, um, framing of it. But anyways, the too long didn't read was instead of actually trying to add happiness to your life, a faster path to more happiness was actually reductive where it was take away the things that are t like causing you unhappiness, take away the things that are pissing you off. Cause there's almost like a natural state. If you can start to get aligned with like, not to sound hippy dippy, but just like nature and your own truth that you're in this kind of default happiness stage and it's the environment that starts to really degrade from that happiness so um anyways too long didn't read i love it uh an axe man amazing I, I knew it with that hair you know i i think it i've always played a role in any team whether it was in a band or or whether it was uh in in tech i guess you could say we're in tech it's more retail than anything else but right when 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 there's a hole, uh, I'm always the first person, always a gap. Uh, I, I can raise my hand because I'm willing to to learn and I'm willing to reskill. And I've always been the person to say, just put me in coach. I'm, I just want the team. And I think that if, if there's something I kind of have to look back, connect the dots backward on, it's like making sense of the arc that I've had is that I'm, you know, the skill to gain in, in the modern era is the skill to acquire new skills. And yep. if, if you don't do that, right, if you, I just look at the last three to four years and how, you know, the D to C era turned into a performance marketing heavy conversation and then attribution. Um, you look at the subcultures that have emerged in the realm of e-commerce and they become incredibly fragmented and faceted to where it's really hard to have a broad conversation about the directionality of e-commerce as an ecosystem because every one of these little subcultures have their own in groups and out groups. And so for me to make the sense of it is that we just have to keep acquiring new skills and you have to keep staying relevant by, you know, contextualizing what's relevant right now. Um, yep. And that's tough. It is tough, but I'm with you. And, and I think too, the other thing that can get lost is uh, consistency will beat out intensity. And so like just sharpen the sword every day. And, you know, I, I'm, I fall pro to this or, uh, pray to this as well sometimes too where it's like oh i'm gonna have just this heroic hall of fame day where it's like and then you're dead for like three or four days it's like if you could just figure out how to just keep this consistent and that is in a lot of times two skills compound so it's very challenging and you need to be really committed because that first part of the journey is going to feel very fruitless if you have your eye on the lagging indicator but if you put your leading indicators of okay cool things that you control and then you realize that success isn't actually one massive event. It's kind of your description of joy, right? It's an aggregate of all these little tiny wins that then put you either in a position to make that big win or the aggregation of those wins is actually the success that you look back on. Yeah. And, you know, because you create content, you know, it's uh, 
you're going to have moments where you get a lot of reach and then there's going to be plenty of opportunity for you to feel like giving up and it's just showing up and being consistent with it that makes you better over time and those things do compound and that's you know that's the other thing is if there's a superpower it's that i'm gonna i can't be smarter than anybody but i can certainly you know pace myself out so that i can stay in the game longer than anyone else i control when i when i dip out right and that where we've you know we've been running future commerce for seven years now and, um, you know, at this point, like as, as we weave together this, you know, really complex story of all the things that I've done, it's like, you need a Gantt chart to really grok it all. But you know, this, there's many eras over the last seven years where the conversation changed dramatically and what e-commerce even means. And, uh, I think there's a little bit of shiny object syndrome too. And a lot of that really has paces with like confidence in the economy as well and confidence in the platforms that power e-commerce and which platforms are actually relevant which has changed dramatically in the last four to five years so all of that just means that like it's just constant change um i love yeah, yeah i love that um actually you brought up shop well we need to get in the value add segment let me just ask a quick question about the shopify stuff and then i have one more question we'll get value add uh what did you see they sold off their uh so they had a little bit of a haircut in terms of layoffs you never want to see people lose their jobs, but that seems to be, I, I think uh, a lot of these tech companies just got over their skis um, where you look at the, like, they just, I mean, massive, massive headcount, um, but they sold off their logistics business that they just bought, which was like, I think their biggest acquisition to date. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or anything around, like, do you think it was the right move, bad move? Well, uh I'm not here. So I'm not a, an analyst uh, in a traditional sense to say that, like, I understand the totality of Shopify's business and its strategy around like acquisitions. I do know that Sh Shopify has spent a ton of time uh, over the last few years taking, uh, make, making measured bets in other SaaS ecosystem players. Uh, so we've seen it across the board. Um, I, I, you know, we could, we could run down the list at this point. I think that really just this, uh, this stock trade with Flexport is making a bet in the ecosystem that aligns very closely. If I had to like narrate it, it aligns very closely with the other bets they've made in the ecosystem, uh, akin to a firm and some others. Right. So yeah. having, having, having the position that they do where they can see where, uh, dominant players, uh, have longevity and aligning with those and trying to find upside with them. You know, they made, uh, they made investments in, in companies like Yapo, which, you know, has triple, you know, and exactly. And so that when you look at those, it, it seems like it's right in line with the strategy that they've been running for the last few years. Uh, I think making the doubling down on what you're really good at uh, is a, good a point smart thing for for investor confidence especially when you're when you're a publicly traded company and you have stakeholders to worry about shareholders so i think like the longevity of business especially a publicly traded one has a, a different number of levers they have to pull um if you want to contrast that with uh, apple's not great news uh earlier this week they had to counterbalance some of that with stock buybacks right so you have to use cash back to your shareholders in way that continues the upward or, you know, at least plateaued trajectory of a stock. So um, the shareholders, wisdom of the crowd, seem to like the moves from Shopify. Yeah, I think it's like a 20, 25%. Yeah, a big run, big, run, not a bad bump. <laughs> a bad bump. And I think also if you look at their GMV, so again, I'm not an analyst, but if you look at their gross merchandise, which is the total number of dollars transacted on their platform that flows through to merchants, 
Shopify has the largest number of stores uh, as a platform. So they, you have think of them as landowners in the e-commerce landscape. They are a formidable uh, continent uh, unto themselves, and that is growing. And it's growing beyond analyst expectations. And I think that that is unexpected in in our economy, which further tells you that like the global economy and and especially the U.S. economy isn't following the gold trajectory of what you might expect in confidence uh, in a high inflation uh, era. And so I guess everybody doesn't know what's going on. I, I would yeah. say I don't know what's going on, but it seems very good for Shopify and shareholders seem to like it. So, yeah, though, no, uh, you kind of changed my tune again. Uh, I think that's right. I think the bet was, you know, being this full stack, right? And it just seemed like they spent just, a t- I think it was Deliver, I believe. They just spent a ton of money on it and they just couldn't get it to work. And so I think to your point, like let the people focus on what they focus on best and we'll offload this, not for a loss. And we'll just hope that it then materializes with Flexport kind of crushing it. But it's a really good point because I, I do think that when you do make bets and they don't pan out, it's best to, you know, close the position and move on versus putting good money behind bad because then you get into some really weird quagmires. But about the conversation that we've had over the last couple of years too is this is the trajectory of Shopify and sort of our our recontextualization of what they are. We saw them before as a pure vertical player that only services the online merchant. And then we saw them as an uh, an omni-channel player that can facilitate a lot of merchants. POS. As a, uh, a growing um, multimodal, you know, multi-capable part of a retailer's uh, arsenal. It's like, well, I can also like manage, you know, fulfillment with them. That changes how I think of them. The divestiture doesn't change how you think of them. I, I think that they, they successfully have transitioned to enterprise. They've successfully transitioned. Like where they occupy brain space in their buyer's mind is incredibly important. And they've successfully done that. Now, whether this was a sex- successful financial move or not, I think is something that, you know, is, shows up on the P&L. But the way that we think of Shopify, yep. the PSYOP that is, let's think of Shopify as being broad to everybody and competing against Amazon, that's been incredibly successful. And I don't know if you that without the deliver acquisition. Yeah, that's fair play. 100% where the, yeah, now I'm tracking what you're saying, that the positive impact of the narrative shift is, kind of already been internalized they can't really get the thing to work so let's just offload it to somebody else that can't no that's a that's a really good uh caveat there well i mean I'm, I'm i'm old enough to remember gsi like lots of companies have have tried to have you know one hand to shake in you know a, a really complicated relationship commerce is hard Com- yeah commerce is hard logistics are hard especially too when you're you're a heavy uh you know essentially a tech company and you you can do really well with bits but atoms are just almost antithetical right like it's it's hard to move atoms versus making or they're just just different skill sets and you kind of saw that apple showed that as well when they tried to get into um some some of those plays where they're they're just a really competent hardware company ios is kind of coming around that'd be fair but um okay finally finally let's get to it okay uh this is a value add segment why the people bought the ticket Tell me about future commerce. So seven year overnight success, seven years in the making. Uh, give me, give me the skinny there. What's the elevator pitch? Why'd you start it? What are you guys doing now? You have, I want to talk about the visions conference, talk about archetypes, uh, go for it. Spread your wings here. Uh, so 
Yeah, I think we we touched on it at the beginning. Is uh, you know our goal here is to change the conversation, and uh, and I think that there are many, many, many places where you can get tactical advice in the ecosystem. There are very few places where you can understand and contextualize where the future of consumer is going and where culture is shifting. When people ask me what is the future of commerce, I give them an extremely unsatisfying answer. And the answer, the broad generalized theorem, is that the future of commerce is whatever the culture decides for it to be. You cannot take a technology from one culture and transplant it to another. Why? Because commerce is a language. And there are ways that language and communication and this value exchange, this discourse that we have, that only work in one language and don't work in another. You can ask yourself, well, you're like, give me a really solid example. One of those is that some cultures have developed in their language gendered nouns. We do not have that in English, right? Some cultures do. And so the way that we bring the cultural expression of commerce from one culture to the next, there will be a lot of similarities and cultural normatives. There will be a lot of overlap, but it's where the difference exists that we, we often miss. And then we have to sort of examine why things didn't work when they made the leap. For instance, I have this position that live stream shopping will never happen in the West. And I can give you 20, I can give you 20 reasons why I think that is. But I think it's because fundamentally at its core, the culture in Asia and in specifically in China is is one that is was a culturally repressed society that yeah. operated under one set of rules until 30 years ago. And now you have people learning for the first time in their lives how to be consumers. And they are immersed in this becoming of a consumer. You and I, uh, and maybe others listening, we may have been raised in a culture where we are consumers from the moment that we're born and we're taught to consume. And so there's a very different modality of that shopper that we don't have here. Now we do have expressions of it. So that is like the number one big picture conversation that we have at Future Commerce is that we study these things and we put them into newsletters, podcasts, research, print pieces, and events that will wow you and make you think about the world differently. And that is our goal is to elevate the conversation. And yeah, I just want to be like a luxury media brand for the e-commerce. I love that. That's such a good line. Yeah. That's such a good line. I love that language analogy because it kind of extends as well to your point if there's uh, kind of like the romance languages, right? Like you can kind of learn them easier and that's almost like the West. And then you have, so there, there's some cultural overlaps, but there's still, one of the things that blew my mind was, um, so we're exploring, uh, penetrating Australia where it's actually a really good D2C market. There's just, there, there's people with money there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we actually need to localize the app for Australia, which is crazy, but because the culture is so divergent from what's in the States that you can't just because it's English. And so I, I think that's just even more interesting to me where there can be almost the same languages, but without the cultural alignment you will lose impact, efficiency, and effectiveness uh, in not only your marketing, but in everything else. That's so fascinating. Take the future commerce angle on this. I could actually give you required reading. Um, we have a, a little bit of a like a, <laughs> a bookshelf for, for people. If you're interested in going deeper, maybe just ask ChatGPT. Uh, but there's a, um, <laughs> all has a, a, a famous piece called The Silent Language, and that talks about like nonverbal communication norms in different cultures. Um, language uh, being not just things that you speak, but it's also gestures, personal space, you know, your body language, how you hold yourself. 
Um, and then um, uh, Gert Hofstede has this uh, a theorem on um, like the six dimensions of culture, and that is like collectivism versus individualism, masculinity versus femininity, and um, long-term, short-term orientation. All of these things come into play, right? And that's why a lot of people just relegate commerce success to luck, right? It's really difficult to to coordinate all of those things at the right place at the right time in a culture with the right audience like you, manufacturing that's incredibly difficult is to do it on purpose is really really tough right it's um uh oh, what was the artist there's a, a famous artist who uh, said that uh, painting is easy um i think it was Degas who said like painting is easy and, and until you you get good at painting and then painting's really hard i love that man you're blowing my mind the uh because I always thought culture or commerce created culture, but you're absolutely right. Commerce is a function of culture. That is so cool. That's a that's a that's a moment for me. I, I, I need a cigarette after this. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's a really really good take. That one of the things too is that we're trying to find more permanence because everything's ephemeral right now so we started with podcasts and then we launched newsletters and those things are great but what i found is that people can't all often remember where they heard something especially if you're a pro prolific consumer of of content so people that read newsletters are heavily indexed to read lots of newsletters and people that listen to podcasts are heavily indexed to listen to lots of podcasts and depending on how much content you're consuming you may have very little recall about where you heard something Yep. And uh, so what we have uh, shifted into doing is, especially, you know, in the last year and a half, has, can we make things that are that have more like object permanence? It's like, what are things that exist in the world? So in December, we, we launched a book called Archetypes. Um, it's so a, cool. And a physical event that sort of launched it at Art Basel. And that has sort of recentered us around, you know, more IRL, deep experiential, concept events that infuse both art and commerce together again trying to change the conversation away and the modality of how we're used to interacting with things in the world of commerce and and purposely doing it different and in a way that we could only do that no one else would ever dare to touch um, no i love that now the archetypes is a it's a work of art man it is not it's, it's so interesting too because to get to that level of deliverable there's so many things that have to go right like from the, the concepting, right, to the ideation, to the design, to the execution, to the writing, to the actual literal design of the book, to the the way you guys delivered, like everything was just chef's kiss. It was really, uh, yeah, your your attention to detail. Now I get because of your pedigree and, and software, where software is very, very unforgiving um, compared to other more like art stuff. And so that, that rigor has totally um, came over, but also... It's such an interesting mix that you are because you have this incredible like left brain, but you also have this really inquisitive, curious right brain. Uh, it's it's really fun to follow. That means a lot to hear you say, and um, I think you really have to experience it for yourself to to really grok what we're talking about. And so I'll shamelessly plug archetypesjournal.com. So uh, cool. You can see that or futurecommerce.com uh, to see like the breadth of everything we do from trends reporting to others. But um it, you're not kidding, right? Like we started from from scratch, literal scratch, and we, you know, we commissioned photography. We, we, you know, we we created an entire art design system. You know, we hired modern dancers. We had docents in at our event in in uh, 
in our Basel, sort of like sleep no more meets modern dance meets e-commerce, you know, persona, you know, brand development. And, uh, but if you told e-commerce people, by the way, like lots of people were really surprised, you know, we, we kept them waiting outside. They had to like take this personality quiz, which archetype are you? And it puts them into this stage. I'm a, I'm an explorer. And so, you know, with this write-up where we spent a lot, you know, one of our team members, um, we're a small team at Future Commerce. We have 10 people. Uh, but one of our team members is like this incredible researcher, spent 15 years at Condé Nast, uh, Rachel Swanson. She's incredible. And she helped us, you know, devise this way of like teasing out all these nuances of people's behavior and their brand alignment. And so, yes, it is very deep. And I think the 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 challenge for us is like, how, how much do you beat someone over the head with the depth of the thing that you're trying to create where you know that there's a lot of, there's yep. a lot there. Um, or do you let people discover it for themselves and one day when the light bulb comes on and they go really, really deep and they realize it's like, wow, that's when they become, when you become beloved, when you become, yep. that's when it's like, how, how have these guys been so slept on for so long? And, you know, we're just trying to put in the work. Um, and I, I know from being a songwriter, you got to write a lot of bad songs before you write a good one. So let's just get all the bad ones out and <laughs> get the reps in. No, no, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Get the reps in. Um, you are doing some really cool stuff, like you mentioned with your uh, Visions Conference. How how do you just higher level think of community? How do you think kind of D2C or retailers or anybody trying to enter the e-commerce space should be thinking about community? Yeah. Um, well, community is a fraught word because in English we only have one word for it, but I think it's actually a, a multitude of different things. Um, and so we I, we don't have time to go into that whole theorem, uh, but I, I did write a critical piece about uh, Outdoor Voices and Ty Haney a couple of years ago, uh, wherein I said, I think community is more like a table that you set for a meal. Like you can invite people to come and it's their choice, whether, you know, uh, how long they come, whether they come late, whether they like the meal, whether they have dietary restrictions, like the way that you prepare a table and then ask people to sit at it is entirely incumbent upon them and what they bring to it. And you can, all you can do is just prepare the meal. You can't do anything else. Like you can't force people to behave in it. Um, so my, my thesis around community, especially around something like visions, uh, which is a big tent pole piece. It's a big trends report that we put out every year is we set the table and hopefully the menu is, is inspiring enough that people say, wow, I've, I've never had uni before. <laughs> Some people would be like, gross, that sounds disgusting. I'm not eating that. Um, but what I'd, I think what I'd much rather have in this world is people, you know, uh, have a very polarized reaction to the thing that we're doing and yes. say it's valuable or it's not valuable and they can self-select in or out, then people be indifferent about us. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do. So Visions this year, uh, to your point, is a, a physical event, June 15th in Chicago. We're putting on a, a one day only event kind of launching visions, which will be this sort of multi-modal transmedia exploration of how commerce has changed, the context of commerce has changed, where commerce happens is everywhere, um, and that everybody sees the world differently. And if you could fundamentally understand that people see things differently from one another, and we don't act as generationally, we're not a monolith, Gen Z is not really a thing, it's a convenient, you know, way for us to reference a, a change in, in behaviors, but not necessarily like a monolith that people all act the same, but everybody has that. 
everybody has individuality. Everybody sees things differently. So what, how can we examine the ways of seeing? And if we can examine the ways of seeing and all the ways that people see things, whether that's how they behave in a subculture or whether they feel nostalgic about a time that they never lived in, or whether they do feel nostalgic about a time they did live in and they pine for it. If we can look at these ways of seeing the world, we can build brands that speak more directly to people individually and become more endearing and more emotionally resonant. And so uh, we have 200 seats. I think there's only 60 or 70 left. Uh, Let's go. Get to Chicago, kids. To have some people come out to Chicago to, to be part of it. We're going to have some spectacle. We always do. We, you know, there's, you know, musical performances and, um, and uh, there will be uh, a, a, there will be some visual spectacle that I, I don't want to ruin, but um, some really cool stuff happening there. I would love to have some people come by. It can take the rock star out of the band, but not the, uh, not the rock star out of you. You know, I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you read, oh no, let's do some user questions and then we'll get into rapid fire. Let's do it. You in? Okay, cool. This is from Sanjay Jenkins at Sanjay at play. Ecom State of the Union, feature of the industry. What you've both seen in terms of non-digital marketing to drive digital sales brand versus marketing sales niche, if Rabba likes to run or not. Uh, I'll take the Rabba question. Uh, I used to actually be a very, very good runner. I, I got a D1 scholarship, broke some records. Um, don't really do it anymore. I kind of, one of those things where I just put in my time. It was, uh, I was really good at it, but never liked it. And so it was just one of those things. So, uh, but do you need to restate the question? Cause I kind of already might've muddled it. Yeah. Maybe just at the beginning part, I think he, he touched some sort of like offline to online or something. Yeah. What you both seen in terms of non-digital marketing to drive digital sales, brand versus marketing sales machine. The non-digital market, it's interesting because I think that uh, the hot take I think would be is that is anything non-digital anymore. I think that we, you know, there's a lot of the the offline that is spurring digital activation. I think it's meant, let's use one really far afield, like out of band example, because God forbid I reference a D2C campaign. Uh, but I uh, let's look at Row and yep. uh, and the out of home that they've been doing around Azimpic as being a really good example is that they don't treat people they they don't treat people like they're idiots and that they're really they're stating a value prop and if you don't know what azempic is you're going to go google it and we all know exactly what happens then right and so the, they'll have a there's this offline to online is a thing that i think they're doing expertly and a lot of folks in 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 healthcare and telehealth have had to do for many many years anyway uh and so i think that uh who's doing it well lots of people are doing it there, the degrees to which it's successful, I think, is is really up to the brand who's spending the money and how they equate success and how they attribute success. But to say that, like offline to online is hard, um, if you really think about it, that's how the world has always been in e-commerce, with the exception of the last few years. So, yep. um. Yeah, I think it's some brands and some teams are really skilled at that and have a sixth sense about it and some don't. Yeah, no totally tracking. I mean, the for us from the B2B SaaS world, uh, events were fantastic. Non-digital marketing was fantastic for us. The challenge I would say for people wanting to jump into in real life events is that one, it's hard to throw a party. Two, the first question people always ask when they get invited to a party is who's coming? And so 
if you are going to throw that in real life event, you really need to have a core group of evangelists already online that then it culminates in this real connection in person. And we saw fireworks when we did that, where we have this really nice, great digital presence. And then that digital presence can then have this really awesome crescendo at a certain in real life event. However, we're on SaaS economics. So that's the one challenge if you are a D2C brand is you just have different unit economics, different margins than a SaaS company. And so you just need to make sure that uh, you can, to, to Philip's point, you're, you're tracking your success metrics and there's a chance that this will be successful uh, because if not, it can get into a, basically a cost center. And the last thing I'll say about in real life events is that um, don't do them bad. It's better to not have them than to throw a bad party. And so when you are ready for it and you do have the resources to do it, absolutely jump in. Okay, we're going to get back into little AI. This is Greg Bar Barbosa, at Greg Barbosa. How will a how AI will change? Hold on. How AI will change agencies managing? What I'm just going to paraphrase it, Greg. So apologies, but how will AI change agencies managing marketing and technical performance for e-commerce stores? Oof. Uh, so I, I helped run an agency for 10 years. I think this is right in my wheelhouse. Uh, it changes everything. Um, but I, I think if you think of agencies as being value added resellers to some degree, it's a really good mental model. Agencies want things that are repeatable, right? So that they can put in some intellectual property, whether that intellectual property is a technology that doesn't exist that they can deploy or a set of processes that ensure an income or a high margin. And so when, when you're looking at professional services, it's just another tool that someone's going to come to them and say, we don't know how to use this tool. Can you use this tool for us? Can you be our hands or can you be our brain? In that way, it doesn't matter what agency you're running. There will always be someone in this world who never wants to touch the technology and wants to pay someone to do it for them. 100%. That is like, will it disrupt the nature of the work that we're doing, especially in e-commerce? Absolutely. It already is doing so. Right from the coders who are told they're not allowed to use the code, you know, tools in GPT who are going to do it anyway. Yep. The writers who are going to use it just so that they don't have to go through writing another brief from scratch. Like we're going to do the fun stuff that we want to do. We'll offload the rest of the machine. We've already been doing that already. We've been doing that for ages. Um, I don't think that changes agencies. In fact, if anything, it's going to create more opportunities for the B2B companies of the world who sense they should be using a tool and don't want to use it for themselves to come and find people to do it for them. That's my take. Fantastic take. Amazing take. Uh, one more question from Nahomi. Jess out of Rhode Island, Hire Fire team. Um, this is kind of talking about the linkage between digital and retail. So how do you measure retail lift from digital ads? Can you, can smaller brands do it? Can digital ads uh, even push to retail? Uh, this is not my wheelhouse, uh, but I will, I will give you my perspective. Um, and that comes in the form of sort of a, a, a bit of a parable. Um, I think what the challenge here is, is that you need to be able to have a, uh, there's two things that need to be in place in your company. Remember we are corporations, right? Who have to, who have to exist tomorrow and next year and, and years from now, right? So number one thing is, does the culture within your organization allow you to redefine expectations and success and goal setting while still making mistakes? And the question there is, I think what, what falls down a lot in these conversations around offline to online attribution, measuring return on the investment or return on ad spend, whatever that might be, like, 
it's not about how you do it today, which will be dated by a year from now anyway. It's about, do you have a culture that allows for flexibility, failure, learning, experimentation, and, you know, goal setting uh, from the people who actually hold the budget at the end of the day or hold the, who sit in the accountable or responsible role. And so for me, it's less about like, can it be done? Yeah, absolutely can be done because that's how big, that's what companies have been doing for a hundred years in advertising has been, you know, following their instincts, forming hypotheses, taking measured bets, and then waiting a really freaking long time to see if it paid off. Right. We've only been, we've been saturated in data for a decade now that we forget what it used to be like. And I think that in, uh, in, in the modern, if you, if you take all of advertising publicity, if you take all of modern, like the, the consumer package, package good industry and you just take it all in its in its entirety. Really, the last ten years is an aberration in in total scope of the century that we've had of like modern retail uh, uh, supermarkets, uh, what what have you. So my my sense is yes, it can be done. Does the culture allow for you to make mistakes along the way so that you can learn? And that's where you're like we've compressed the learning phases into this thing that happens on Facebook in you know a week or 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 a few days based on the amount of spend that you have. Like it's going to be much much longer and a much more laborious and a, a lot less scientific than what you would like if that if you if you were raised as a digital marketer. Um, in which case, I would say like, hey, team diversity really plays a lot in a lot of. Uh, uh, plays into a lot of these conversations what you need to go find is go find a brand marketer from the 1990s yep. and get a person on your team or to consult for you because they have a sixth sense about how these things work in the world and they have a playbook that you can execute that you can say whether something works for you or they don't um, and i've only learned that through working with storied brands like bbn bev nestle um and 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 abbott where they don't wait 24 hours to get results on something did 24 months right right sensational the eloquence is just exuding out of you philip i feel like you're ready for the rapid fire <laughs> rapid fire me all right let's go west palm overrated underrated 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 you like it right how long have you been out there 17 years there you go amazing uh print books overrated underrated underrated i love my book man i love it I'm a sucker too for like the crazy uh, large format prints and they're like seven pounds and you just lay them open. I, I, I'm totally with you. Uh, Twitter, overrated, underrated? Overrated. Ooh, I take, like it. Uh, LinkedIn, overrated, underrated? Over. I, I'm going to say it's overrated. Uh, Chat GPT, overrated, underrated? Underrated. I think most people just don't know how to use it. Yeah, I think there's going to be transactional with it and we need to... Uh... There's a lot I could be like that could be said about this, but it's rapid fire. But I, I think if we if we got more philosophical with the way that we uh, use it as sort of like think of it as your mentor and what you yeah. would ask your mentor, and stop asking it to do work for you. That's how I see it, right? Yeah, just a tiny sidebar. Anecdotally, that's what happened to me. Where when I shifted, actually, almost like interacting with like an assistant or a coworker or something like that, it made me realize how ambiguous the tasks were that I would give people, and it really like the more you can. If you could give this to an executive assistant or a coworker or something like that, like it really transforms it. Really good take. Really good take. Changes human communication forever, and that and like I, I this could be oh yeah. Anyway, it's I, I think it's still underrated, even though I think most people would say it's overrated. 
Yeah, no, I'm with you. It, it, especially too, the, you look at the speed of development as well. It, like if you take something like Midjourney, because I, I asked you about ChatGPT, but Midjourney from V1 to V5 was it's it's unbelievable. Uh, collab with anyone, who would it be? Oh shoot, um, anyone? Yeah, whoever you want. Uh, Billy Billy Corgan. Dude, he gave me nightmares when I was a kid with the, the shaved head and everything. Great music, though. Great music. The kids will not get that reference, but we, we love him. I understand. He's, uh, he's, he's an entertainer, and he owns a pro wrestling, you know. Uh, so on brand. I did not know that, but could totally see it. He's an entertainer. He he knows what, what sells. He knows what people want to see, and he knows how to create spectacle, and I think we need more of that in our space. I couldn't agree with him more. I, I, I don't want to tip my hat too much, but stay tuned on that front. So... Oh, all right. I think the kids refer to this as foreshadowing. Love it. Um, as a purveyor of one of the best newsletter newsletters out there, um, what's your favorite newsie? What, what's one you you don't miss? Uh, work, work by Aaron Falter. Is oh wow, I don't know this. Amazing. Seven nine that I print out and read when I'm not you know looking at a screen. Uh, Aaron Falter is is brilliant. Uh, she. Uh, is a serial investor and uh, is the head of marketing over at Tido. Uh, but she has a personal newsletter called Work Work that talks about the development of your inner self and the inner work you do and how that relates to the outer work you do or the the, the career development. And those two are mutually beneficial to each other. The more you know, the more uh, inner work you do, the greater outer work you'll do. And the greater outer work you do, the more you realize you have more inner work to do. And I think it's a really profound. Uh, piece of writing, and I look forward to getting it in my inbox. Ooh, well, got a new sub. Uh, favorite podcast? Also, a purveyor of fantastic podcasts. Uh, I you know what you can't I can't miss for me, and this is going to be uh, sort of left field. Um, I listen to a podcast called Screen Drafts. Now, this is the an interesting podcast. It's it's a long form, four to five hour show sometimes where. Uh, there is a uh you have to buy into a conceit and the conceit is that there is a draft happening where there are draft commissioners who invite uh these uh these gamers to come on to draft their favorite films in a given very specific niche or genre um and it's uh it's a wild show and they have a whole mythos and sort of a uh, a fiction component to it where they sort of role play. And I find that sort of, uh, you think about how broad film podcasting can be. There's tens of thousands of shows, how to, how to stick out, how to, how to stand out in, in a, in a long form. You, you've got to develop the fiction, you got to develop the mythos. Um, and I find that to be fascinating. So it's an academic and a, and a fun listen for me every week. It's a great, great rec. Uh, okay. Two quick, two last questions. Uh, favorite place travel to and why? Uh, favorite place, Barcelona. Oh, I'm a big Barca fan. And because it has everything. If you want city, it has it. You want shopping, it has it. You want canyons, it has it. You want uh, beach, you got it. If you want different weather, you got it. It has food. It has everything you want in one place. Architecture. I mean, yeah. It, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm, uh, I'm a big Barca fan. It's everything, yeah. Barcelona is is a, is a can't-miss spot for me. Of course, I, I've not been to Paris yet, uh, which I'm, I'm trying to knock off the big cities. I've not been there yet. I'll be there in November for my 20th anniversary with my wife. Let's go. I have uh, yet to be, or I, I went to Paris when I was really, really young, but uh, that's also on the list for me. But yeah, big Barca fan over here. Okay. Last one. Let's wrap it up. If you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, 
fictional or non-fictional, who would it be? So you're sitting at a four-person table. You're sitting at the head. Who's getting the three invites from Philip? Uh, three invites. Let's see. Um, uh, John Berger, uh, an art critic from the 1970s. Uh, okay. Be, uh, really fascinating to me at the moment. Said a lot of things that uh, we'll be covering in Visions, but said a lot of things that I think are really profound and useful for right now. Love to have dinner and break bread with him. Um, I think uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was like a media theorist uh, from from uh, uh, the, the 50s and 60s, wrote uh, Understanding Media, Media is the, uh, the Massage. Prolific thinker. Um, and then like my, my oddball one that I think the two of them would play off really well with Marilyn Manson, maybe. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That is a table. Let's go, Philip. That's amazing. And, uh, and persuasive communications meets, uh, you know, the guy who did both, uh, for most childhood. So yeah, spectacle indeed. He was, uh, that's amazing. Philip, dude, this is, uh, I think highest insights for me per minute. I mean, again, this is, I was so excited to have you on. And sometimes I say, don't meet your heroes, but you have totally exceeded my expectations. The way you think the eloquence in your responses, just a masterclass. Um, how could people get more involved in future commerce? How do they buy tickets to visions? This time is yours. Plug whatever you want. Uh, futurecommerce.com is the place to go. Futurecommerce.com slash summit is how you'll get uh, the tickets for visions and uh if you if you are so uh daring to go down the rabbit hole uh go over to archetypesjournal.com and uh, discover your archetype and uh, pick up the book and uh and maybe one of these like we we did a lot of merch production like this is a, a custom uh blanket that we had that was that has all 12 of the archetypes on it uh, we have glassware a lot of other things a lot of really interesting stuff that we've produced over there to sort of get into the mind i've been slacking i only got the book i need to get the blanket what? And get the blanket, oh long sleeve. Get what the... am I doing here, people? <laughs> so I shall fix this egregious error once you get off. Philip, you're the you're the man, dude. I really just incredible, incredible stuff. Um, if you guys want to get more involved in Triple Well, we are triplewell.com. You can head over there, grab a demo, get your attribution, get your business analytics, start printing the money. Um, we also have a fantastic newsletter that goes out every Tuesday, Thursday called Whale Mail. You can subscribe at triplewell.com slash whale mail. And then if you actually prefer to see Philip's beautiful hair versus listening to his beautiful voice, we put all our podcasts on youtube.com slash tripwell. So go check that out over there. And then, oh, one last thing. We uh, give away merch at the end of every podcast. What's the the safe word? What what should people message me uh, to win some merch? Oh, I have to tell you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just make up a safe word or a word for me. Free Willy. Free Boom. Look at this guy. Amazing. Okay. And if you ever so please sign the change org. Um, no, but if you message me at Robert Ray Hill, free Willy, um, or LinkedIn, Robert Ray Hill, free Willy, we'll send you out some free triple well merch. Philip again, dude, thank you so much. Thank you for the flexibility, the knowledge, the wisdom, everything, man. I, I look forward to connecting more. And if you're ever in Austin, give me a shout. You got it. Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thanks brother. We'll see you guys on the flip, uh, for another one next week. All right. Bye-bye. Do you want to scale your Shopify store? Do you want more commas in the bank account? Do you want to track every single metric? Do you want to make custom metrics? Do you want a real-time dashboard with over 15 integrations and more coming daily? 
Do you want a tracking solution that can show you new customer revenue, new customer site visits, gross profits, or even custom metrics, something crazy new that we don't even track yet? You can do all of this with our triple pixel. How about inventory management? Never run out of stock again. What about an activity feed where we pull in every single change throughout your marketing ecosystem? You can even add custom activities as well to see the impact on your business. Do you want reporting, whether that be in email or Slack? How about cohorts, LTV, AOV, customer journeys, maybe a little bit creative analysis to understand what angles ads are performing best? Well then, Triple Whale is your solution. You can go right over to triplewhale.com and grab a demo today and start riding the lightning.